Hello and welcome to Talent and Titan, a podcast for current and future leaders in the advertising, digital, and design spaces. Talent and Titan is produced by Creative Niche, an innovative staffing, recruitment, and executive search firm in downtown Toronto. You can find Creative Niche on all social medias at Creative Niche or at the website creativeniche.com. On today's episode, you will hear a conversation between Jesus Goriti, Sean Mandel, and myself. Jesus is the head of digital customer experience and design at RBC. Sean is the chief digital officer at TELUS, and both are good friends who first met at a barbecue in Austin, Texas. During our conversation, we will discuss their respective origins, what excites them, what they think is important and unimportant in team members, the mindset problem, and much more. Stay tuned. Sean Mandel. Well, so I used to work for a company called Fjord, mm-hmm. uh, and at one point um, we decided to go down to Southwest West in Austin oh, cool. in 2013 uh, to do really, a, eh? yeah, long ago? that long ago uh, to do a, like a, an event to promote uh, Fjord. We just got acquired by Accenture mm-hmm. at the time, and to basically uh, try to do sort of recruitment. Because design talent in the U.S. it's complicated in many ways, especially where where Fjord is, which is well at the time it was New York and San Francisco, mm-hmm. and the event was basically a barbecue because you're in Texas and you know uh, what you should do. Uh, so we we organized it. Uh, I was the barbecuer because I love barbecue, and at one point these three guys appeared who nobody knew who they were, and I'm like, who who are you? And I was I was doing my my brisket at the time. And one of them was, was, was Sean. And I was like, oh, Canadians, interesting. What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> uh, oh, we work for a, for a telco. Oh, a telco, right. Tell us. Oh, I know, tell us. So I, I used to live in Vancouver at one point. And uh, yeah, that's how we met. And after, after that, at one point, I tried to sell him a project. Yeah. Uh, successfully, I might say. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, Sean crashed this party. Yeah, he did crash the party. That party was awesome. It wasn't that great. It was no, it's hilarious because that day was interesting, right? So I had yeah. a long day, and then I jumped on like some petty bike, and we oh, started right. biking into the ghetto. And so, like, I'm not joking, like we were literally in the ghetto. Yeah, I didn't. And, and I'm like, and I'm like, where are these people sending me? <laughs> and so we get out in the, this like rickety old neighborhood in Austin. It was really cool. It was raw. It was real. It was great. Kind of like what's going on outside this window, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's this guy wearing like an apron talking yep. about he's been standing at the barbecue for like 18 hours and uh, wow. he lifts up the lid and he's got everything you could ever imagine going on. And that was Jesus. And uh, we've kind of hung out and been buddies ever since. Yep. How, how was the barbecue? Was it good? Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> I, um, I was told by a Texan that it was the best brisket he ever had in his life. By wow. And I was like, uh, good, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then about two years ago, I, I um, Royal Bank of Canada recruited me from uh, from Madrid, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I moved to Toronto. And I knew this guy who was in Toronto, so yeah, we, uh, we say, hey, let's let's have a drink. Right on. Um, maybe uh, each of you can just tell us a bit about who you are, where you're from, your background. Uh, I know you delved into that a little bit, but uh, just for the the listeners. Um, I'll give you the short version. Um, yeah. 
I'm Sean Mandel. I'm the digital officer at uh, TELUS, which is a, a large telecommunications company in Canada. Um, and I've been doing product development for about 20 years almost. Um, and, um, you know, we were building apps and websites in 2002, 2001, putting apps on SIM cards, this Java card runtime. Remember that stuff? Those, oh, were, yeah. interesting, wow. those were interesting, heady design discussions around like user experience back then, right? Like SMS as an interface and SIM cards and stuff. And I think the world's come a long way since then. But I got yep. to cut my teeth with some pretty hardcore old school service development guys. So a couple of my mentors actually launched and built the first wireless networks in Canada and made the first phone call, I think back on, I think it was July 1, 1986, the first phone call was made in Canada on a cellular phone. Nice. And so wow. those are the guys I hung out with. And so you can only imagine the, the sophistication, the experience, the, the rigor, levels of documentation, just I really learned from the best. And I'm really happy that I made those decisions to hang out with those guys who are still actually chugging away today and um i got a lot of experience just you know launching products building networks wireless networks um and then in the last five years i've had ama an amazing opportunity to uh lead what is now called telus digital uh which is a you know which the idea started as a startup inside of a large company um started with 20 people in a 40 by 40 training room is now 300 people across toronto and vancouver and uh Let's just say we're, we're trying to kick some ass. Okay, right on. Hey, Zeus, how about yourself? So, my name is Jesus Gorici. Uh, English is my second language, and it shows sometimes. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in, in, in Spain, um, but I work abroad uh, for a number of years now. Uh, I am a, a designer. Um, I'm currently managing the, the design team for what's known as RBC Digital which is the digital group uh, that is powering the solutions for Royal Bank of Canada. So we basically design uh, all the service, cell service channels for, for RBC. ATMs, uh, secure websites, mobile apps, uh, you name it. Right now, we're about 100 designers, uh, give or take, uh, and which I think it makes it the largest design team is, in Canada. Yeah, it is the largest, one of the largest. Yeah. Wow. Which is not necessarily a good thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, means that, it means that potentially we're not efficient. Um, it also means you need to run it. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, takes, it takes time and, time and effort, but it's, it's good. I like it. I, and, and people keep saying, oh, but you're not a designer anymore. You're a manager. It's like, that's not true. I design, I design careers. I design conversations. I design um, things to happen in a way. It, rather than interfaces, but I, I do think as a designer when I'm tackling management problems. We should talk about like zero UI today. Like, you want to talk about that? Yeah, we'll go. I think we should go into it. So I just spent two months writing up some sort of a paper. I am paper. so deep right now in like augmented intelligence. And it just, <laughs> it's, it's just intense, but like, you know, bots and conversational interfaces and zero UI and like apps fading into the background and all that fun stuff. What is zero UI? Zero UI right now is manifesting itself as kind of voice and how you interact yep. with 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 applications and services through kind of conversational UI. That's that's where it is right now. Let me give you a, maybe a very, like an Amazon very Echo type of yeah yes yeah. yeah. but let me give you a simpler example that actually okay. exists uh, without AI helping it though, which is I think the, the game AI changer. AI is a buzzword. I'm talking more machine, yeah, yeah. machine learning. Machine learning. Normally it works and whatnot. Yeah. So this office that we're in, when you come in, there's a little bell that goes off, right? You, you have interacted with the system without you noticing it. You actually get an audio feedback, 
that is meant for you, but is meant mostly for the people in the office. That is zero UI. There is not obvious UI that you're interacting with it. Mm -hmm. um, when you walk down the street and a camera is recording your movements, that is zero UI. Up until now, that's been very passive. But now, that video signal can be analyzed uh, for a variety of reasons. And that analysis can be done in a way that uh, you don't have to look at that analysis constantly and you only get an alert when whatever you said was meaningful happens. That is zero UI. It's very, very interesting. Uh, more cumbersome it looks at one point because the learning curve, like if you don't expect a UI to be there and then there's a UI there, you kind of freak out. Right, right. Like that bell right. freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> The, the problem I think we're running into is you're going to have a lot of these progressive brands developing experiences. So this old adage of, you know, you download an app and it's not friendly and there's a login wall, I'm going to uninstall it. Or I'm going to hit a website and it doesn't load in three seconds, I'm going to abandon. Mm -hmm. You're going to start seeing customers expect to pre pretty seamlessly interact with your product in a, in a way like, for example, that Asus described or using your voice or even using gestures and waves. And what's going to end up happening is people are going to start disengaging with your product if it doesn't react in those ways. Like, for example, I think you guys just launched the ability to, uh, what, transfer money through Siri. Yes. Right? And that so, happened. you know, I, who knows the details behind it or if that's going to catch <laughs> on. But if more and more companies start, you know, allowing you to do transactions through, you know, Alexa or a Google Assistant or Siri, then, you know, other customer and behaviors are going to start to shift which means you're going to need to start to catch up. So this is kind of the, the fourth wave or that next wave of things that are happening that you know companies need to jump on and at least have a point of view on it, at least develop a strategy on it. You know, Are you going to execute on it right away? It doesn't necessarily mean you need to, but yep. at least you need to know what it means to your business. Right? Yep. Uh, and the challenge is in both the user side and the, and the business side. That's, that's obvious. Uh, but it's not necessarily... Like, I'm going to give you a very, very silly example that I quite like. Uh, a lot of uh, retail stores now use their Wi-Fi network as a way to sniff uh, people's uh, devices yes, yes. And, and know who you are, if you are, if you're back, all, the, all that stuff, right? Um, the thing is, let's say that I have set up a Wi-Fi router in a, in a store for that. Mm -hmm. But the first, the area, it's always ever-changing because of, you know, uh, in external influences. Like when it rains, the Wi-Fi just go... Right. Uh, but... Let's say that I detect an, a MAC ID address coming into my area of influence. Uh, I have to record the speed of that ID coming in and out because I have to make a decision whether you are actually a walking person or you're a car. Or, sorry, somebody inside a car. Nobody thought, thinks about those things, right? Those are the new things, the new interactions that now we're having to figure out what to do with them. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's it's... Very, very interesting. And again, from the user side, if if you don't know something is happening, the the gesture thing, it's it's very interesting because I have a background in video games, and uh, you guys remember Kinect, right? That's dead now. And at one point, it was going to be the yeah, next big yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other day, Microsoft announced we're not building this thing anymore uh, because it's proven to be something very interesting from a technology perspective, but users' behaviors are very much entrenched on very efficient interactions, which are the, the, the remotes, the controls that they, they, they use. And for a user to make a decision to change an existing behavior into a new behavior that it's perceived as less efficient, not necessarily true, just perceived, mm -hmm. it's very difficult. And the voice, the voice play, it's, uh, 
Uh, Kinect was one of the first interfaces Absolutely. in that sense. Yeah. And for things like oh, or even like a Wii. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Same idea. Totally. Go, go to, go to this, uh, to this particular minute in a movie. Saying that is more efficient than you pressing, uh, pressing the fast forward button. But people didn't see that. But on top of that, how often do you do that anyways? How often do you say, ooh, I'm going to replay that scene from you know, whatever movie? You, you don't do that. Most people right. don't do that. Uh, so finding those use cases, uh, and the Siri play is a very interesting play for us. Yes. We don't know what's going to happen. For us, it's just at this stage an experiment, a very interesting experiment. Can you just uh, expand on that experiment a little bit? Um, well, I can and I cannot. <laughs> so I, basically, I can describe what it is. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, in, it's in production. Right? Yeah, it's in production. It's an integration with Siri. Mm -hmm. So if you're an RBC mobile app user right. and you have an iOS device, you can enable it. And basically, what you can say is tell your device to send money to Sean, for example. Not that I will ever do that. Uh, <laughs> just by telling, telling it by voice. Say, hey, Siri, uh, can you send five bucks to Sean Mandel? And so my, my book address and whatnot. And, yeah, and so look at that. with your fingerprint to yeah. you know, manage the transaction, right? Yeah. So who knows where these types of things go? Like we're building tons of skills for Alexa. You're going to see right. something from us shortly with a launch around Echo and all the skills that we've built. Is this thing going to hunt? We don't know. But we, we definitely need to build a skill set and a capability around these emerging technologies and what they mean to our customers. And some of these things hunt and some of them don't. But what we're going to do is build up a bunch of internal knowledge and know-how and we'll port it to other problems and other opportunities but this is the stuff that's happening now and i don't think a lot of companies can sit back and just watch without participating in some way yeah so how do you approach building that internal knowledge and know-how um it's a long topic the long and short of it is um you know we've stood up a small little group of people that are just getting smart on the subject and so kind of that's the scope of it right and so we pulled technologists and product developers and digital team members and a few people from our IT organization together and say, like, don't go out and have to invent anything. Don't go out and, you know, go buy something. Just, like, let us know what this means to us. So, you know, we call it kind of getting getting smart, if you will. And so right. that's how it's manifesting itself now. And, you know, what partnerships can we make? Who can we partner with to help us through this? Because I think one of the most important pieces on this topic is, like, who do you partner with? You can't right. go on your own, right. right? So, you know, these are the things we're thinking through. And, you know, I think every day we're learning more. I think I spent, I think I learned more last week on this topic than, you know, I spent some time listening to Ray Kurzweil speak. Right. And uh, Peter Schwartz. Yeah. And some pretty interesting characters that I think helped advance my knowledge on the topic. So I'm learning every day. And I think you got to be humble about it, right? Like you got to be conscious of what you don't know and admit that you need help. And I think that's sometimes the sign of a good leader is you kind of step back and say, hey, I, I just don't know. And like, right. go learn, yeah, go discover, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that, uh, is that what you're most excited about? Uh, these days? Uh, you know, not necessarily. It's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's obviously a, a side gig right now. I've got a big team and a big job, but um, what's exciting right now? What's exciting? Um, scale, man. Like our team is getting really large and um, we've done some amazing things with um, our platform and the technology that drives the outcomes we deliver to our customers. And uh, let's just say it's spreading like wildfire in a very, very good way. So our, our, our challenge, and I think what's intriguing to me every day, is like how to scale and automate, right? Like humans don't scale. Like that, that, that's, that's a fair statement, right? Is, do humans scale? No. So, Very so badly. This, this idea <laughs> yeah. of you know, scaling on the back of automation and automating all the things is a huge focus for us right now, right? Right. A major focus. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about the origins of the Telus Digital Labs? Because uh, I researched it a little bit. And, uh, Wait, what did, what did you find? Hard. Did you find anything? 
I found uh, I found some the, like the story that you've you've told at a couple different talks. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It seemed like a pretty novel idea at the time. It seemed yeah. like I'm I'm interested if maybe you guys um, had a lot of friction in the beginning and. Um, well, the goal the goal now. is to reduce friction. I think we learned how to do that more and more over time. The the problem of of, of digital at Telus was an interesting one. It was actually a very typical one which was things were really expensive, things took too long to develop, customers weren't happy, we didn't have good access to data, and the list goes on. Um, but buried inside of the team that I adopted was this, a bunch of really brilliant people. Um, so when we first took it over, we didn't really know what the answer was. Um, we knew that we had some capabilities inside of the organization. We knew this idea uh, of digital or what people um, think of digital needs to evolve and needs to change. Like we're not talking about like apps or websites or mobile or social or those right. types of things. That's part of it. But we were, we're trying to raise an acumen of people internally that like digital is about how you do things, how you iterate and deliver value, like how you work with customers, how you catalyze the organization. So um, our idea was a bit of a flyer. We got inspired by corporate startups. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea was, you know, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take 20 people. I'm going to stick them in a room. And we're going to empower them to do something and rebuild something. And we're going to give them all the autonomy they need, all the resources they need. And, you know, we're going to give them a very, very clear mandate. And um, there was no kind of plan B. Mm -hmm. And what was 20 people has grown to, since January 13, has grown to 305. Wow. And it's pretty wild. And I think what's different about what we've done is... Um, my my new favorite saying, Jesus, is uh, we, we don't we don't we believe we don't practice innovation theater. <laughs> this isn't this isn't a corporate PR exercise. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't right. an incubator fifteen blocks away from your corporate head office. This isn't a small group doing proof of concepts and sending out press releases. Like this is the real deal, and part of that is exciting and fun, and part of that is painful because right. the best way to think about who we are now is we're an agency embedded inside of the company. And we're there and we work with everybody and you can look right in like we're there for all to see. And again, like I said, it's exciting and difficult at the same time because, right. you know, obviously the rest of the organization isn't progressive as, as, as we are. And we're trying to, um, you know, we, we've always been looked at as a bit of a vehicle for disruption. Right. How can we disrupt the status quo? And that, that was the idea. And it, it's working. But, you know, this is a long game. You know, anytime you think you're done. And you climbed a mountain, you probably just realized you have about <laughs> 75 mountains to climb. Like, there's no, there's no done in this game, right? No. And, and yeah. is dealing with the same thing in terms of what RBC Digital has stood up inside of a, what, 100, how old is the bank? 100 years, 150 years? 150. Old? Yeah, we're it's a 100 year old telephone old company. Canada. Right? Right. Right. And, 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 the, and it's the same riddle that Jesus and team are trying to solve over at RBC, which is, you know, how do you drive, you know, that definition of digital that I described into the core DNA of a very traditional organization? And, Let's just say it's 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 uh, it's never a dull moment, right? Nope. And at least, like, what you were the question you asked before about mm -hmm. what are we excited about? Uh, it ties. What I'm excited about right now mm -hmm. is two things. But one of them, the, the customer-facing one, it's actually very boring. It's the boring things. Um, when you look back at what digital banking meant in Canada 15 years ago, which, which by the way, was pretty good. It was actually ahead of most countries in the world. Uh, people are doing the same things. They haven't developed new behaviors. Right. They're using the same five things they used 15 years ago. And we haven't, no bank has been able to, uh, you know, move that dial. It's just always a stick with 
check balances, uh, send money, uh, pay bills. Except for the pictures and checks, that's helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. But we're moving to a checklist world, guys. Yeah, Come course. on, let's just accept that. Please. Hey, I, I, I get it. Man. Just stop sending me paper, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. But it's funny when we when we actually remove paper from people's lives, they they freak out. Well, it's interesting. Someone was telling me a story. I was spending some time with people last week, just talking about their children and and what their children think of things. And we had this funny funny conversation about like hanging up a phone. They're like, "What does hang up mean?" Or right. or this idea that um, the next generation sees paper checks as not legitimate. Yep. So the irony of it is, is we see them, our generation is like, okay, that's legitimate because it's like the check, yeah, it's yeah, paper. Yeah. The next generation thinks it's not digital and questions its legitimacy. Right. Yep. So you have this huge flip happening in terms of sentiment and behaviors and it's interesting, right? There's, there's another funny flip there, which is, uh, you'll read this when you look about millennials and banking or millennials about mostly everything. Like millennials, millennials are ruining the world. Not true. Ruining the world. Yeah, ru ruining the world, right? There's, there's so many. It's a different value system. They're exactly. shaking things up. Exactly. They're, right? they're just changing things, which is fine. Yes. And, and, and back especially. Just they like go, the generations before them. Yeah. They're like, oh, millennials are not engaging with us. Millennials don't have the money yet to engage right. with the bank, the bank, the way banks are structured right now. Mm -hmm. That's why they don't engage. It's not that they don't want to. It's that they, they're just, they don't see the point. Well, it's somewhat counter to, this, to some of the stuff I've been seeing or reading around, just like how... I think some of the crisis and some of the things that have been going on are driving a, a much more frugal behavior with some of these millennials, right? Yeah. Saving money and being far more responsible than I think they get a bad rap for. Avocados. Remember that? Yeah. They cannot buy homes because of avocados. <laughs> because of avocados. That was an actual They headline. can't buy homes because everything's so damn expensive. Exactly. Like that's one of the things I feel for in that generation is it's going to be a tough climb for to build wealth or to build equity in um, you know, this generation because it's, it's so hard to move difficult. into the city. Like think about what's happened in Toronto or... The price of real estate is very, very high these days. Right? Tell me about it. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> As a newcomer to this country, it's quite complicated. I feel like I'm lying out sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the second thing I'm, I'm super interested about. It's uh, a scale, as you were scale, talking about. Man. And, and there is this, in, in developers figured out earlier than, than designers with the DevOps movement. Uh, because as a developer, it's easier to measure and track what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, the inputs and the outputs are clearer than a designer. Uh, and and the, the DevOps movement, it's, it's very much uh, in that in that direction. So there's actually a movement now called design operations. Uh, yes. And it's very, very interesting because it's how do you de deliver design at a scale in a way that is consistent, in a way that it's predictable, in a way that we can actually understand what the hell are we doing, not just, you know, churning out images constantly left and right or UIs. Um, and as a matter of fact, another first for you guys, we posted the first design ops uh, posting in Canada about a month I ago. A, I have a head of design ops. You have a head, but you didn't do a posting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We've been on this train for a little bit. You've been in this train <laughs> yeah. as well. But, it, but this idea of building tools and capabilities, thinking of uh, like, a, like an enabler, if you will, right? Yeah. So, okay. you know, our, our head of design ops focuses on tools or focuses yep. on our design system, which has become, I think, far more of an engineering exercise than we ever imagined it would be. Back to the point is how do you do these things at scale? And those are the things that you need to invest in in order to make it happen. Yeah. Talk Which, more about this. Again, What's this job posting all about? It's director of design ops. Boom. I know. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, I already have a person, thankfully. Of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, but it was an interesting search because how do you look for these people? How do you look for designers that worry about problems that most designers don't are not trained about or don't care about? Like in, in, in universities, uh, your 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 teach as a designer. I, I wasn't trained as a, as a designer, by the way. Sorry, or educated as a designer. But your your teach uh, how to use the tools, how to think about aesthetics, 
uh, how to critique and whatnot, but there is no how do you deliver design at a scale in a company kind of course. And I understand. I mean, it's it's fairly it's fairly it's fairly new, but it's a very interesting problem. There's actually a summit next week in New York. You coming? No, I'm in San Francisco. Oh, sorry. So you're not doing the hangups. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had enough time to just focus exclusively on design, Jesus. I really do. I just don't. That's true. I don't. That is true. Sorry, Sean. Can I just get you to move your yeah, mic of course. a little bit? No worries. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, I noticed uh, when you were answering your previous question, you said that you had no plan B. Yeah. And Jesus, that kind of made you laugh a little bit. And I'm yeah. wondering if, uh, you know, why you had okay. that reaction. Uh, economics. Economics is not finance. Economics is... Um, basically, analysis of uh, cost uh, benefit and cost doesn't have to be monetary, right? And benefit doesn't have to be monetary. It, has, it can be many things. So if if you know you have a safe net, safety net, sorry, you're not gonna run enough. You're not gonna run hard enough at the problem. Right. You're gonna you're gonna say, oh, you know what? It's fine. I can just you know, I I don't have to push this too hard. I'll I'll there's that other way to fix this. So that's why you sometimes you have to not have a plan B. So you can actually run at the problem with enough strength and with enough focus. Um, I call this, I mean, humans, we tend to, I speak like a third person, uh, <laughs> people, uh, actual people, that we tend to, we tend to um, uh, play too safe with things that we shouldn't be playing safe, uh, where we should be making real investments. And, and there's this, like, whenever there's a, a problem, most people think, oh, I'll find somebody, another person, who can address this problem, when sometimes that is the totally wrong approach. Accessibility, which is a huge problem. Uh, the, everybody arguably has accessibility issues. Some of them are visible, some of them are not visible, right? And most companies, the way they dealt with it was create accessibility teams. But in the moment you, so wrong. yeah, you anthropomorphize in a way the solution to your problem, everybody else gives app responsibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, they'll take care of it. Yes, I'll push it over to that team. Exactly. Right. That's the plan B. That's the problem. And that's the problem. You got to push these skills down into the team members. I think was it 6.2 million Canadians have some sort of like, like demonstrated accessibility yeah. requirement and everybody whether you're a designer you're a developer you're a product owner you're an automation engineer it doesn't really matter needs to have an acumen on accessibility and so yep. what we've done is have avoided that phenomenon of creating oh you know jimmy over there's the guy go talk to him to make sure your product's accessible that that, that isn't going to work at scale you have to push these skills and this knowledge down into the teams mm -hmm. or you're going to be in for a bit of a surprise especially with the new government requirements yes. that finds uh it's good, you know, and they're it's policing great. as well. That's great. So the fact that the, the, the government has mandated and legislated this, and then the fact that they're going to set up ways to police this, and then you have activist groups who are also going to police this is a great thing. It's going to hold people accountable, which you kind of shouldn't have to do, but it's just an unfortunate reality. But I think right. it's a really good thing. It is. We're trying to, we're trying to address it in a different way. I think when, when, when a user doesn't understand the text that is put in front of them, that is an accessibility problem because they are the, the content is not accessible, mm -hmm. and not everybody can read well. <laughs> I feel like well, never, everybody does actually read exactly. Right. So how how do you actually make them do things that they feel satisfied with, mm -hmm. and they don't feel dumb about it, and they that they can get their lives about? 
without thinking, oh, I need to learn this process and I have to send money through the bank now because it's, no, that, that's, no. that's not how it should be. But it's got to be intuitive. Yeah. What you just said about uh, having an accessibility team, for example, and pushing it off to them or having a plan B reminds me, I read an article on your website about user experience <laughs> and how you don't like that term. I, no, no, it's not true. I, I love the term. I think it's badly misused. And okay. here's another, another, how I look at things. Language, this beautiful thing we use to communicate and that I magically speak a different language that I was born with, right? Yeah. It's a technology. It's something we invented to enable large groups. And we actually thought before we spoke. Right. So language as well shapes. Uh, yeah. It's, now we speak before we think. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 shapes, it shapes how you behave. It shapes how you do things. And um, the, the user, user experience, which is a great concept, the way it was born, has been badly adopted by companies and by groups. It's very easy to grasp, but very difficult to really understand what it means. So when I got here, the problem I found was that my team was called the user experience team. And many of the problems we were having uh, had to do with the experience users had. Uh, but we were... Not necessarily, the word's not blamed. See, I kind of find the right words. Um, we were made responsible of it, but in truth, other people's decisions had an impact on the user experience. 100%. So me removing the name user experience from our team's title was a way of, of signaling to the organization in a very nudgy kind of way, which is as well something that I try to work with. Instead of trying to be, I try to be explicit and implicit, right? Um, I removed it so everybody, so I could communicate and signal to everybody else is all of us, from the CEO to the guy who cleans our branches, all of them are needed in the system to deliver the experience. All of us make decisions that impact the user experience. So by removing it, it's a way of saying, guys, we all have a... Um, Responsibility. Say, uh, exactly. It's, a very, it's a very much a Disney type kind of yeah. look at. And we don't, we don't design experiences Sorry, that is, this is my opinion, and, and I know that it, it becomes problematic. We design things, uh, artifacts, components, and whatnot. We assemble them, and then somebody else has an experience. But it's going to be different. Everybody is going to have we can buy, We can eat the same burger. We can both like it, but the reasons we like it for are different. And it's very difficult to self-report why is that the way it is. We lie all the time to ourselves. It's fine. It's, it's not our, it's, our brains are wired that way. The only person that I can argue can be named user experience something, that's what we call user experience researchers. Because yes, you're researching the user experience. You're not planning it. It's impossible. And, and yes, somebody will say Disney. Disney designs experience. They create, a, they create environments for you to have an experience. Right. But again, different experiences. You got it. So but that's, every, that's but everybody plays a role and back to your analogy from the guy cleaning the branch all the way to the CEOs, everybody yeah. has a, a role as a member of, of, of that team to deliver on the experience. And what makes what Jesus is talking about even more complicated is that now I'm going to introduce the idea that everybody has to have an eye for design and experience. 
Right. Yeah. So the, the tester, who's testing this stuff, who's building this stuff, who's approving it, who's who's you know shepherding it into market? Does your developers have an eye for design? Because they better. Do your testers look at design, or are they just looking at function and happy paths? And so now all of a sudden you got to take this idea that is a discipline and then say, hey, guess what? Every single one of you needs to have an eye for design. Right. So that even just takes what Jesus was talking about and what is I think this construct of usually oh the design team. Now you got to push that down to everybody and drive that. And I'd say if there's one thing that we're driving really aggressively into the mindset of our team, it's it's actually that you are all designers. You all have to have an eye for design. Like our digital capabilities and properties are the number one traffic thing of our brand, mm -hmm. regardless of the guy in the store, the retail, the call centers. Like that's what it is. And so everybody needs to have um, a little bit of pride in what they deliver and a level of professionalism. And so, you know, that, that makes that topic far more complicated than just a small <laughs> team of designers, right? Um, there is a design, uh, it's as well a, a word that has been not necessarily misinterpreted, it's been misused as well. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to the dictionary, the definition of design is very broad, which is what design is. Um, I like to ask the question, what is design in my interviews with candidates? Because I find the results of that question very telling in terms of how somebody looks at a problem. Mm -hmm. um, if a designer tells me, oh, to make things pretty, simplifying, most of the time they don't say that, they say different words. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that is not what we need to do necessarily. Uh, design, making it pretty, it's potentially a business requirement. Mm -hmm. But some businesses don't require things to be yeah, pretty. Function. function. Exactly. Uh, Kijiji, which I think it's, an amazingly well-designed service used by tons of people successfully, aesthetically, is not that pleasing. Yeah. But that's fine. Craigslist that's... is even worse. Exactly. Yeah. And works like a bloody torpedo. It's amazing. Yes, right? seriously, right? There's actually the best definition of design that I know of. Uh, it's actually not even written by a designer. It's written by Herbert Simon. He's a Nobel uh, Prize winner of economics in 1980. He's the father of risk analysis, and I'm gonna look it up because I can I can remember words very well. Um, I thought you had it written on your T-shirt, man. Uh, I don't, I'm not that that kind anymore. Get you a T-shirt. I don't do T-shirts. I work for a bank. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's design is devising course of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. The words he used are very well chosen. Preferred. Preferred doesn't have to be better. It doesn't have to be prettier. It doesn't have to be. Is just something you say, you state your requirements. I want to go from here to here. That's the course I want, the, the change I want to achieve. Uh, and that's what, why, what's that preferred? Uh, and it's, it's uh, devising the course of action. It's how you go from A to B or how you go to, from A to C. Right. That's design. It's like, I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this change. And most designers, they're not trained like that. They're trained on the output mm -hmm. rather than on the, this is where, how we're going to do things. Um, and maybe that's why, like we were talking about Connect earlier, it wasn't successful because they didn't take that in the path into consideration. You, it was, it was, it was very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, Minority Report. It's a, it's a great movie in many ways. I guess remember that one. Mm -hmm. Tom I Cruise? do. Yeah. And there's that scene where he's using his arms to interfa interface with uh, a video good. editing tool mm -hmm. uh, of futurist things, which is great. Yeah. Uh, as a user, as a, as a designer, when I saw the movie, the first thing I thought is. He, that guy must have amazing deltoids. Because if he's doing that all day long, first of all, it's not very effective. Like from an economic perspective, his hands, the, the, the translation of hands movement into action 
there's a lot of cost in there, right? Right. Uh, so how's that gonna work? But everybody focused on that moment, and everybody wanted that interface. And when Kinect came out, everybody wanted their Minority Report UI, and I was like, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Maybe sometimes it might actually work for some things, uh, but I didn't think it was gonna work at all. I mean, and it just it didn't work at all, obviously. Um, and when I, when I first got my Kinect, which I was, I was very excited to play with, same thing. After five minutes, I was sweating. I was like, I don't have the, the strength to do this. Uh, kind of the point, though, right? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's fun. It, it, it was fun, but it was, at the end, obviously, meaningless for the customers. <laughs> so earlier when we were talking about, um, you know, trying to have your entire team be conscious of design, uh, that reminded me of something that, I saw you say in, a, in, a, in another talk, I think it was at Mars uh, in 2015, Entre Entrepreneurship 101. Yeah, some culture, that's right. And uh, that I thought it was something story. I ate some really bad sushi before that, that talk. Before that talk? I was in a bad way during that talk. <laughs> well, I couldn't tell. I know, but it was, trust me, it wasn't a good place. <laughs> Thanks but, for reminding uh, me. You said uh, that uh, culture is a mindset. And that kind of uh, seemed to link up with um, you know, with having your entire team, uh, having, you know, to be cognizant of, of one or more elements. And uh, I was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the word mindset's probably well chosen in the sense that like, you know, it's funny, I was, I was doing a talk last week and actually one of the, talk, one of the things I threw out there was there, there isn't enough money in the world to throw at the mindset problem. And, and, you know, we run into challenges where, you know, your biggest barrier sometimes is people and behavior and the culture of organizations. Like, you can throw money at technology, you can throw money at people and hire a bunch of designers or hire a firm and do great things, but usually that's not the stuff that's going to hold you back. So um, this idea of aligning mindset or having um, dialogue around people's mindset becomes really, really important. And, you know, when you think about um, this idea of culture, and, and why culture is important is because culture is about a bit of a belief system, right? And culture has things that are visible you can see. So a sticker on your laptop, a name of a meeting room, a t-shirt that you might wear, or those types of things are visible that people can see. Um, but culture also has like a series of like belief systems and things that are invisible. And so we spend a lot of time, to be honest with you, saying the same damn thing over and over and over again um, like a broken record because you're trying, you're not trying to, trust me, you don't want a whole bunch of people assimilating. You want diversity. You want diversity of thought and people from different walks of life, but you have to, as a leader, drill in a common understanding and, and, and that mindset piece is really important. And back to, I think, Jesus, what you said before about, um, how, how, you know, the way you design the, to kind of define design and the way you answer that simple question gives a very good peek into your mindset around how you look at problems. Yep. How you approach problems, and so for us, the mindset riddle is probably the most important one. I I agree, and I'm gonna disagree. Do it because money, money. You can throw money at mindset. Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> let me let me let me let me, exp let me explain because I think it's actually one of the one of the most common misconceptions companies uh, have when dealing with cultural transformation and cultural changes. Um, they they keep doing. Like they, they say, they, they claim through PR or whatever, we're doing a digital transformation very seriously. But when you actually go and work with them, the way they budget, for example, yes. is the same way as always. Of course. 
So how do you expect to have different outcomes if you keep, if you keep doing budgeting the same way? Yeah, we love to have the same conversation every nine months. Right? Exactly. Yes. Or bonuses. If your bonuses are paid based, based on some sort of metrics, um, but you don't change the metrics, people's behaviors aren't going to change because the way they get rewarded is by you know making sure those metrics actually work. So you have to change the money. And yes, you throw money yes, at I, it. Yeah, from that perspective, yes, of course. Right? <laughs> but I do. Inc I, you're talking about incentives. Yeah, I do agree. I do agree with you that you can throw a lot of money at consultants. You can throw a lot of money at uh, new workspaces, and workspaces helps as well. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't change some of these fundamental mindset things, the culture is never going to change. People get re being rewarded for doing it the old way; they're going to keep doing it the old way. Start, startups, it's a funny one for me because people look at them and they focus on the output, but look at the setup. How, why they, do they can do things differently? Because they don't have the cultural heritage that most of these large organizations have. And it's easier to start a, a new and do things in a different way. And then you end up with it well, was very bad startups. There was a great, great article, um, Stanford professor, why is his name escaping me? I don't know. Um, talking about why large companies just can't be startups. And they talks about these institutional kind of barriers that are in place. Yeah. Quarterly reports, reporting to the street, the checks and balances through finance organizations. And it's very difficult to unwind, which is back to this innovation theater comment before you run into I, companies I trying, that, to, yeah. trying to get away from it yeah. and trying to think that we can be something new and do something different. But what they don't realize is the hard part is changing the organization and evolving it. And that's a long game, right? Like, yeah. It could take you five years, could take you 10 years to do it. And so... You know, trying to find people that have that experience and understand that journey is, you know, the challenge of hiring, right? We're trying to find those types of people. If you know, if you're anybody out there, Sean.Mandela at Telus.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, I good, good, good point there. Um, I um, when I when I joined RBC, uh, I told my team that I think it was my third month in the in in the job. I said our l biggest obstacle. Uh, it's not people that think different to us. It's not people that try to do things that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. It's the sentence, this is how we always do, did it. Right. Uh, that's, our, that's our biggest challenge to overtake. And I, it, it, I think it still remains true. I agree with everyone. Uh, yeah. yeah. And he's like, no, 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 this is, you, know, you, don't, you don't break it. You, you've done it always like this. Mm -hmm. You have to do it like this. And you're like, why? Why do I, why, why, and this is again the whole generational change. Like, why do millennials behave the way they behave? Because they are a new generation. Stop trying to analyze it. Just you know, roll with it, adapt. Anyways. Yeah, I was hoping we could talk a bit about uh, what you guys like to see in a in a new hire. Um, you just mentioned new hires. How difficult it can be to find good people. Uh, you both work with uh, pretty large teams. Yeah. Obviously, you've had to. Uh, Assemble those teams. To hire a few people here. Yeah, you've had to hire a few people. So, what yeah. do you like to see in a new hire? What gets you excited about a new hire? What don't you like to see? I don't like egos. I hate egos. Mm -hmm. Mine is big enough. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, I like I like I like people who who have uh, not necessarily. I don't I don't need super passionate, over the top personas. Like I can, I, I, that's okay with me. Uh, if you're not that kind of guy, you can be an introvert. It's perfectly fine. But I need you to be curious. Uh, I need to keep asking questions. 
and, and I don't need you to settle for whatever is in front of you. Uh, but I, I don't I don't want egos as well because users they don't have to care about us, and egos get in the way a lot. We tend to try to hey look at this amazing decision I made. It's like yeah that's great, but users don't care about that. So curiosity, not egos. Uh, I don't I don't want rock stars. I'm, I'm it's like I whenever I see somebody heroes, you don't want the heroes. And I don't want the heroes. No, that's the problem. I don't want the crisis managers. Yes. I want the people who can do things in a predictive, inquisitive, boring, if you will, kind of way. because uh, that's how you actually solve most design problems. And boring is key. Yep. We to be honest with you, we aspire to be boring. Yeah. You know, no events are actually pretty good. Um, what do we look for? I, I agree with this this idea of networking, being curious, like being hunters, right? I think is um, just to kind of build on what Jesus was saying, it's so important. Like, organizations are big. You have to network. You have to make friends. Yeah. You can't wait for it to come to you. You got to go get it. And I think that spirit is, is kind of the embodiment of what we're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. We also look for, it depends on the role. Like, we're obviously looking for practitioners and specialists and, you know, people who are really, really good at their craft. So don't take what I'm about to say with that. But people who cross-trained quite a bit and yeah. have various experience in different organizations or different disciplines and understand what it's like to, you know, you know, we always talk about, you know, let's say um, a technologist that became a designer is always an exciting thing for me, or someone who has a business degree, but has a high technical acumen. And so people who can kind of play, you know, can switch hit maybe, if you will, from a, you know, these are baseball analogy, yeah. becomes a very attractive type skill set. And we also train for that. So, you know, as, as you join our team, we have a, we have grids of, of career development. And one of the most important things we want people to do is you know, essentially cross-train, which is move around. So if you're in our data science or our analytics team, we're going to train you on our segmentation tools. We're going to move you onto our targeting tools. We're going to make you become an SEO expert. And we're just going to move you around so that your skill set evolves and builds up over time. There's a great point there. People who can demonstrate ability to constantly learn, it's, it is taken for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, and people will flaunt their degrees and whatnot. But can you constantly learn on this ever-changing world of digital stuff? It is not very good. Um, <laughs> digital stuff. Digital stuff. Uh, What's digital mean? Uh, exactly. But, but it's, it's, it's that. It's the idea that you know, today we're, we're doing SEO one way, and tomorrow we have to do it in a different way. Uh, and can you actually stop doing the way you're doing it and, and, and be self-conscious? That's another thing I look for, self-consciousness. Self-awareness. Yeah, self-awareness. Yes. People really, like you know, I always talk with people like like talk to me about your biggest opportunity. Like I don't use the, like the word weakness, but like those types of things. Yeah. Or my favorite interview question is if I if I get my hands on your worst reference ever, what are they going to say about you? Yeah, right. right? Everybody's like, oh, references available for request. They give me the phone number to their brother or the sisters acting like the CEO of some company, and Jimmy's fantastic, and like you know, you know that story, right? Yeah. Tell me the opposite of that yeah. story, and to see what people say, and to see how self aware they are of these things. It's like. So important. So the the reverse uh, the reverse reference call question is yeah. now one of my new favorites, right? It's I, I do the same with, with um, if I call up your friends or your coworkers, what are they gonna miss from working with you? But what they won't miss, and if the candidate can't think of that, it it shows certain lack of self awareness. You find people. It's interesting. Um, we do we we do these roundtables when we kick off initiatives and projects and as opposed to asking the questions around what will make us successful, we ask the simple question, which is, we will fail if. Yeah. And what you'll find is people are far more articulate at, at describing failure than they actually are success. 
I think that's proven and try it yourself. Like as you meet people or you're working in groups, you'll, you'll find very quickly that failure is far more easy to articulate than success for, oh, yes. for a lot of people. <laughs> Sorry, Sean, can I just get you to turn the mic a yeah, little bit? There you Thank go. you no so worries. much. No um, so if we were to get our such hands a on... I'm such, I'm such a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, such a diva. I know. Sorry. If no we were to get in contact with uh, your worst reference, as you say, what do you think <laughs> they would say? Um, oh, that's easy. And what would they say? <laughs> uh, that I sometimes bumble. Uh, <laughs> that is true. No, it's that... Um, I can become, I can be stubborn and I will hark and, 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 and focus way too much on things that they don't think it's important. Uh, yeah. And, and, I, and I, 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 ooh, I'm, I'm reckless. That is, that is very <coughs> true. Yeah. I'll, I am, this is an, a, a criticism that people in my teams have told me over the years. I tend to throw people in the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. and see if they float and it's true i like to do that a lot um and i know that it's not necessarily a good thing for some people uh and i've uh, yeah I've, i have to get out of that i have to build safer environments with no plan b which is complicated right yeah right? it sounds complicated how do you how do you balance that yeah absolutely so recklessness yeah <laughs> don't what be about reckless. you Sean? um my my pay, i get lots of comments on my pace and how quick i move um, I have a, I do have a patience challenge. Um, let's just say patience isn't necessarily my strong suit, but you learn those things as you know, you mature. Um, but, um, yeah, like the pace, uh, active listening, being mindful, uh, those types of things are important. I, I'm, I, I guess I can easily say I'm very good at multitasking and it's like, That's bullshit. It, it, it's bullshit. Number one. Uh, and number two, even though you could be a great listener, body language and eye contact and those things become important. And I get, I do get criticized by the boss that I know you're listening, but you need to look up and like, you know, no, people right. don't, people don't really understand you, Sean. Right. Like, so I get that quite a bit, but, uh, let's just, let's just hope that the positive far outweighs some of the, <laughs> some of the, the constructive sides of criticism that we might get. Can I, can I tell story here yeah please because oh, i was that was when i was trying to sell him a project uh we we <laughs> met up in vancouver yeah i remember that uh, we had a lot of fun it was a fun but let me describe it from my point of view because <laughs> you probably didn't experience it i probably well. rolled in late i was on my phone uh, uh, basically we had we were in a, in a meeting room and you harry was there uh, and neil neil was there and yeah. a few others actually came in and uh, it was three of us from fjord accenture and uh, you basically came in and out constantly uh, to, and 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 it, I was like, why is he doing that? Is he is he busy? Maybe like why we're here to talk to him and he's not here. But at one point, actually, you pitched us, tell us, which I found hilarious. I was like, why is he selling to us? Tell us, we know Tell us is a good company. Uh, but yeah, it was it was obvious that you were uh, your attention was elsewhere and you were like you know like getting a new yes. team. Yes, but it was quite confusing for us. Okay, that's all right. It was entertaining though. It was. Probably frustrating. Hey, we had a lot of fun. But they were GIF or GIF? Um, I don't know. Either. Either? Yeah. No, come it's on. It. You have to have a stance. GIF. Okay, good. <laughs> Not GIF. Good. It's like they, they always get these credit. I spend a lot of time in the States. So process or process? Well, you were speaking to the non-English native speaker. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's process. Okay. Yeah, not pro. pro. Process. I think pros. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I don't Whatever. know. We always is it anything correct in language anyways? No, who no, knows, right? There isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I probably changed depending on the accent I'm using today. 
do you think being like bilingual or an expat or anything affects your approach design or has affected your approach oh, yeah. design? Yeah. Yeah. I, so? I mean, um, at one point, a boss of mine told me that I work better in English than in Spanish oh, because really? I learned most of my creative process mechanics in an English context. And actually, English is much better prepared than in Spanish uh, uh, on dealing with creative process elements. Uh, so yeah, it does affect. As I said, language affects your mindset. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember uh, Samuel Beckett, who is a, a writer, like wrote a bunch of books yeah. in English. Waiting for God. Yeah, couldn't get anything published, and then he just switched to French, and you know, became this who he is today. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of interesting. I, I just I just uh, spent two months writing a paper on uh, on a certain topic, and uh, I could write it both in Spanish and English. And I chose English because I explain myself much better in English than in Spanish when I'm dealing with design issues. Uh, yeah, it's 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 very true. Um, Sean, I read that you started working at a young age at a family company that you yeah, described yeah. as a startup. How the hell did you read that? Uh, I can get you the source. No, I don't have it written down right in front of me, but um, you described it as a startup, and I was kind of wondering if you could yeah, I started talk about it a little eight bit. Eight years old? Did I tell you the story? No, but I think that's child oh, abuse. Just yeah, it was actually, it's getting paid under the table. You know, um, my <laughs> uncle labor. ran a successful company. You uh -huh. Party packagers. Yeah. Yeah, and it's now Party City. Uh huh. So what was a, a warehouse and a showroom? So if you were a buyer at a large company and you were buying children's Christmas party toys, right? So you would go and be the buyer for RBC, and you come and you buy three thousand toys, and you want you know variety, bulk discounts, those types of things. That's what they did. They had a you know showroom in a warehouse, and right. you'd come in and do a bulk buy of thousands of toys, and um, you know we'd package them up and we'd ship them off, and then that storefront, sorry, that 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 showroom in a warehouse became one store, and then one store became fifteen stores, and. Uh, my uncle exited successfully from that, and an American company came up and bought it. But that, it's kind of where I cut my teeth a little bit, yeah. right? I was uh, I was stuffing envelopes. Remember those rollers where you used to roll envelopes and send out like mail? Uh, we were building out warehouses. We we built out the store. We we worked on the floor and was you know interacting with the customer every day. And so that's kind of where I got my work ethic from and where I got my experience from when I was nice. uh, probably eight till about thirteen, kind of fourteen type thing. And so and yeah, here you are. Yeah, here we are, right? <laughs> you know, living the dream, right? But no, I think it's important because um, I'm not trying to cast uh, gen generalizations, but um, one of the things that we struggle with, and you know, Jesus build on this in terms of just the, the next generation and talent is um, I'm not finding as many people who have you know those types of stories anymore. I'm not finding uh, enough people who have. I guess, you know, I'm not trying to cast my values on this, but like uh, that level of work ethic, you know, it's funny internally that we kind of have this penchant for like old school project managers sometimes, right? Like, right. and like people who have that discipline, that attention to detail, that orientation around documentation. And it, it's a bit of a dying breed these days, right? And that's, it's, it's a tough, tough find to find people who have um, that breadth of experience, but are also progressive and have that mindset that we've been talking about. That's kind of the magic unicorn these do you, days. Do you think that's maybe a byproduct of uh, the safe environment we built for ourselves? In the same way that vaccines, for example, people are stopping you know vaccination of their kids because we don't see sickness anymore, right? So people don't see right. 
the risk of not having that work ethic or whatever. And, you know, do you, will you agree with that? I don't know. It, I, like I said before, you know, what I'm starting to, it, one, like back to the story that I guys I told you guys before around how I cut my teeth in my career, like wait, like obviously after that, the story of, the, of, of, of what I just told you around like spending time with more seasoned, experienced professionals who've been doing this for a long time, I find that to be more rare. Like a lot of, even back then, we're talking like 2000, you know, the, 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 the people that were my age that were joining the company were all kind of hanging around with themselves and assimilating with themselves versus right. me. I'm sitting in the corner with the old school guys, right? And I just find a lot of people aren't necessarily taking that opportunity. Like even, right. even if I reflect now while I'm speaking around some of the next generation that's in my team, I probably need to encourage them more to go and go and spend time with the engineers, go and spend time with service development professionals who've been you know working for 30 years. And I feel like that's a bit of a lost art. Back to this curiosity, hunting, be a networker, go find it, go hunt for yeah. it. I think we need to keep just echoing that sentiment or we're not necessarily going to breed that that next breed of leaders. Right? There's, there's two things there. One of them is, is up, we have to manage that, right? We, it's our responsibility to, uh, if, if there are behaviors that we don't see in our potential recruits, it's up to us to manage that somehow. I, I don't know if it's imposing our values or, or talking about them. I have no idea, to be yeah, honest. I, agree. I, don't, I don't have a solution. I don't know, I uh, when, I, when I joined uh, uh, RBC, my team had... It was a, a very, very interesting mix of people. And you had people from who had been at the bank for many years. Actually, one of, one of my team members, uh, he's been at the bank for 30 years, 35 years, actually. Lovely guy. And, um, and I had people as well who came from agency side mm -hmm. and who had just joined the bank. And I found this behavior and this attitude that I, I was flabbergasted by. Basically, the, the agency guys thought they were the shit and they knew how to do everything. And... The old guys didn't didn't have a clue, and I was like, and and the and the old guys thought they were they were being disrespected, which is probably true. Um, but at the same time, the old guys, they've been they've been there for a long time, and they didn't try all the things the new guys were doing. So it was a bit of a it's of a balance a, between yeah, the yeah, two. Yeah, and I was I mean, one hand I was telling the the new guys, look, talk to the old guys because they know a lot, especially about the bank. And I told the old guys, it's like you have to take risks. Yeah, you have you, you cannot just expect things to be handed to you like in the past, right? Both of the, both of the groups had problems, both groups had good things about them, but they, they didn't stop to have a conversation and to empathize with each other. Yeah, it's, it's, it, when you're talking, it reminded me, sorry, I had the great opportunity to hear Theo Epstein speak last year. Right. And so we know who Theo Epstein is, yeah, right? Yeah. The guy who, you know, the Boston Red Sox, Chicago yeah. Cubs. Um, but his story of his early days when he started working, I think in the Oakland A's organization, he sat between... Um, the analytics guru yep. and between uh, the other gentleman who was an old school scout who didn't care about data. Right. And so he sat between these two extremes. Yeah. These extremes of someone who was very analytical, used data to drive decisions and play Moneyball, which is the Billy Bean story. Yeah. And the other end of it, which was the gut and the experience. And I think that's an interesting kind of balance, right? Is like, how do you kind of sit between the middle of those two extremes? And so the, if anybody's not read that Theo Epstein story, it's a great story because I think it describes that dichotomy that Jesus is talking about. It, it's it's a great story and, and it shows yet again that the middle path is the difficult path and it's the it's the challenging one and the one that is interesting and gets you better results. Uh, we know that the pure data one has problems because it only describes current reality, not future states. And we know the intuition gut driven decisions have problems as well. Uh, it's balancing that but and it's difficult. Again it's work. 
Yeah. It should be fine. It's, hey, guys, it's, you know, work is work. Totally. The, the meaning of work is changing the state of something, not just coming to work. It's actually an interesting right. segue into like an augmented intelligence conversation, right? All right. Yes. Yes, you're right. How, commu- how, how robots will make us better humans yeah. as if, opposed to the other way around. If the algorithms are not racist. It's, you know, I know, the Microsoft thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they still talk about yeah. that. That no, was like, how many years ago was the, that? Did you see that guy that got in trouble last week because uh, he tweeted, uh, I think it was Good oh. Morning on some language, and it got, it got translated as something, I don't know if it was racist or it was a bomb threat. Um, Interesting. It was like, that, that was an algorithm basically doing translation, right? That's how, it's so how risky things can be. I heard this amazing quote the other day that Microsoft is single-handedly responsible for holding AI back 20 years because of Clippy. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I thought I, I don't necessarily. I, mean, it's hilarious. Agree, I think it's, it's hilarious. hilarious. That's I'm not saying it because I necessarily agree with it. I'm just saying it because it's hilarious, it's hilarious. right? Yeah. And there's actually some merit to it. Yeah, maybe. Is Clippy mm. the paperclip? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it dates him. It's actually you knew exactly what I was talking about, right? I know, I know it's a, I mean, I'm not saying I don't. Do I buy into it? It's I don't necessarily buy into it, but I think it's an interesting kind of statement to get people thinking, right? Yep. Well, because I, it wasn't so advanced, it wasn't so helpful in most cases. You know, it you was know very what, limited, what, and I think sometimes that's what holds back the progression of new techniques or new technologies. Is sometimes the first foray isn't necessarily the best one. So these are these are very funny story that has to do as well with data and whatnot. Because cleaning your hands for doctors. Yes. The, there's a story that when the first doctor did it, all his peers kind of derided him. They went, "Oh, you're 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 a loser." That's, that doesn't have anything to do with infections. Uh, it, it's worthless and whatnot. And it took years, years for people to actually realize that what he was doing was the right thing. So with AI, very similar situation. The, I can't remember his name. He's a Torontonian, actually. He heads uh, Google's AI uh, effort. And they oh, Andrew Hinton. Yes. Yes, that guy. the Vector Institute. Um, yes. He was derided by his peers. They thought yeah, his approach no, to AI was nuts. They thought he was wrong. nuts. Yeah. Exactly. It took 20 years for exactly. them to figure it out. Because they're, they're, they, 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 they thought it was too simple and, and, and not sophisticated enough, and he didn't tackle the problem right head on. Yeah. It was pure machine learning, which is great. But that shows how sometimes the experts yes. make mistakes because they are biased by their own... And, and I, I do suffer from that. My boss tells me all the time, you are too academic sometimes. And I was like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, <laughs> but I'm not even academic, which is but weird. But it's an interesting <laughs> story in Hinton, which is like back to what you're looking for in people, like that grit, that perseverance, that belief that, you know, it's not about being right or wrong, but no. like there's interesting attributes or behaviors in there, which is like the guy had a vision, he drove at it, he stuck to it. And sometimes that's actually what you want in the people you're looking for yep. too, right? People who have that grit or resilience, yep. right? Yeah. I, I want. I definitely want people to challenge me, or challenge their peers in a good way, necessarily <laughs> <laughs> in, in a kind of like storm kind of way. But yeah, he he looked he looked at the problem sideways and uh, and found a solution that it wasn't considered to be exciting or aesthetically pleasing. No, nope. uh, it was it was not fat, but it works fantastically well. How, how exactly did he uh, look at the problem? So instead of trying to um, replicate uh, what we th- what we think we think like. What he did is, right. I'm going to basically train these neural networks through repetition. I'm going to show them examples of something. And, and they're going to learn They're going to learn just by doing the same thing millions of times. Mm. Rather than them, like, here's the thing. We think that we can follow a logical process and, and get to a conclusion and, and analyze data. And identify data sources very, very quickly and very <coughs> accurately. That's not necessarily true. Uh, 
but that, that, was, that was the the sophisticated kind of decent way of doing AI according to the experts. But he didn't try that. He tried a very kind of like Lightning. brute force approach to it. Mm -hmm. And again, not sophisticated, but it works and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good for him. Um, is there anything like in your past uh, that maybe uh, an experience or... Oh, by the way, I, I might have butchered the whole ex explanation. <laughs> just for the record. It sounded good to me. You're good. Like, uh, yes, you're good. Yes, yeah. It's a whole topic. We could spend yeah. way too much time talking about it, <laughs> learning more every day. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I just uh, I thought it was interesting that you said you weren't an academic, I guess in the technical sense. And I was wondering, you know, was there an experience that maybe you learned from not in a uh, school setting that maybe people wouldn't expect? Uh, this is for you too, Sean, that uh, has contributed to your success. Yeah, so learning how I learned was it, and it, I didn't realize, I didn't learn this until fairly recently in my history. I, like I have a whole history here. But anyways, um, I didn't realize that I failed at academics. Uh, not because of, I mean, I failed because of me. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't the, the academic setting was not the right place for me mm -hmm. to actually learn. And I didn't know that. And nobody actually explored that possibility with me. There, no, the same the same way that, for example, design. I am a designer in, in in spite of not having design courses in Spain until 1997, and I studied way before that uh, because design didn't exist as a career in my context, and nobody actually said there's a possibility until I ended up working for an ad agency, and I saw there was this guy called graphic designers who did something that I did in my pastime as a hobby, mm -hmm. right? So. Learning about learning, it's something like, and how I learn is something that has changed how I look at people, at problems, and myself. And it was not an obvious direct topic, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. a sideways topic. Right. It's a great question. Um, I'd say some of the greatest sources of my learning, like I have moments in, in career where made mistakes or did something I shouldn't have done that I've learned from. I have moments where like I can recall very crisply books I've read or things that have had like a profound impact on how I look at problems or how I approach certain situations. I'd say my, my single greatest source of learning was learning to do the opposite of what people did that I didn't appreciate. And that became a lot of how my style and my management style and my style developed over time, which is like, you know, we, we kind of joke and I'm probably dating myself as well, kind of pulling a Costanza, right? Like do the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and I think there's something novel in that idea. And I used to, you know, talk about my leadership style as, as, as a person developed through doing what I saw as the opposite of what my bosses or people who I worked for in the past have done. So I would say that one of the greatest sources of my inspiration was this idea of uh, don't do that. Like, what would the opposite be, to be honest with you? Yeah, that's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah. There is so many, again, it goes back to the, our enemy is the sentence, and this is how we've done it, right? Yeah, why? Like, why? When, I, when, I joined, when I joined the bank, um, people still came to work wearing suits. And these were people who didn't necessarily talk to a customer. Actually, they didn't talk to customers. So why do you have to wear a suit? Oh, because that's how we do it, <laughs> right? Uh, I didn't wear a suit from day one because for me it was there's no point. I, I, there's no value on me doing this. You pay me for what's in my mind, not exactly. Exa you know, it's 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 interesting because what Jesus is kind of tapping at is a lot of 
the way organizations run today are built on constructs that are, in some cases, over 400 years old. Like the idea of, like, was it the India Trading Company was the first limited liability corporation that was ratified, like, December 31st, 1600? And it's like you understand how organizations are constructed um, is a product of that. And you have a lot of people out there who are pushing like blockchain and, and, and those technologies as like a way to break down those legacy institutions and then or that concept of what an institution is. And then you have um, organizational hierarchies. So I've interesting been observing the story of kind of the what was it? The, the Illinois Railroad Company. Right and how hierarchies work, and how information flows within organizations, and how people, back to Jesus's point, is that people, uh, the most far removed from the customer, end up making most of the decisions, and not including the people who are closest to the customer in that process. Exactly. And, and, uh, and we're, as, an, as, an, as a society, still bound down to constructs that were born in the 1850s to manage communication in railroad companies and are a product of limited liability corporation, which is now over 400 years old. And yep. we still today are structured and our value systems and our beliefs and the way we communicate and run companies, you know, but that's also part of the point why these new players are so disruptive yep. and why it's so hard for large organizations to adapt is... You know, we're, we're built on constructs that are as old as like father time. Right? Uh, we don't challenge them enough. It's funny because there's two topics there. One is family, family constructs. Um, we keep like in some countries, families are like sacred, like you can't touch that. But modern families as such have changed dramatically in the last hundred years. We just don't look at them like people used to have eight kids a hundred years ago because four of them are, were going to die uh, <laughs> yeah. because no vaccines. Right <laughs> now we have one uh, and that's enough because we know the success rate of the kid is going to be great, uh, hopefully. Uh, I, mean, I wonder if that's the mindset. Uh, but. but classes. <laughs> classes, we keep using this 19th century model of one teacher, 30 or 20 <coughs> yeah. people yeah, looking totally. at him. And why don't we challenge that enough? Because it's how it is. Uh, my, my kid goes to Montessori school. We didn't choose it because we were that. We chose it by accident, kind of. Uh, and, and it's a great model. And it's already 80 or 90 years old. Yeah, right. right? I went to Montessori when I was younger. There right? you go. Yeah. Do you like it? I loved it. Same here. Um, I, I wish I was a kid again to be able to go through that. Because <laughs> I, I do believe I could, do, I could do better than I did. But anyways, um, we don't challenge it. We just go, oh, yeah, like, like meetings. Oh, no, you have to. You have to do a meeting for that. Why? Why do I have to have? And why does it have to have that agenda? And why do I have to you know, have cookies? Because it's a morning meeting. Why the <laughs> hell do we have to do that? Yeah. Anyways, there's some things obviously like having water that obviously are, are, just are, these are just interesting water. insights just to understand what you're up against, right? So yeah. being, you know, being, you know, disruptors in our organizations, these are the things you need to be mindful and conscious of as you're navigating because yeah. these are difficult things to unwind. And to be honest with you, that's why it's interesting. And that's why it's a challenge. It's a great intellectual challenge, right? I always talk about, back, back to one, probably one of the first questions you asked, which was kind of what, what gets us up in the morning, what gets us jacked about yeah. what we do. It's, I get fascinated by the things you don't see. So I think, you know, Jesus was mentioning before, like the product, whatever, like we're going to deploy these capabilities. It's whatever, like probably a, he probably has people in meetings worrying about those things while he's under the hood worrying about the things you don't see. And that's where I spend the majority of my time because I'm far more fascinated by that than sitting in boardrooms talking about status updates. And I think we're still all subject to those constructs that we just talked about. And, you know, that's why I try and spend as much time away from that as I possibly can. Yeah. Oh, we have to try things and some things will work and some things won't work. While in the past, corporations think that 
when you do one thing, you're going to do that thing, and it's going to work. And that's not true. Not anymore. You have to throw things at the, at the wall and see which one sticks and which don't. And be constantly measuring for success rather than assume it's going to work. Um, anyways, it's super interesting and one of the reasons why I love my job, to be honest. Me too. What, uh, you talked about getting excited about the things that you don't see. What are some examples of that? Um, you know, when you're, when you're under the hood trying to kind of groom your organization and, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at like path to production and like what's the definition of done? You know, and done is when things are in never, the hand. Never, never done. Yeah, like you're never done. But like this idea of you're not done until what you're working on is in the hands of a customer. Um, and, and then you're, you know, gathering that feedback and you're iterating on that. But for me, it's this, this idea of like, what can I do as a leader to optimize from idea research through development through into market? So I spend a lot of my time looking at my team's workflow and understanding what I can do as a leader to remove any friction or impediments in that. And I get far more jacked up and excited about that than I do looking at, you know, sitting in, in boardrooms and having project status updates because, it's a great intellectual challenge to understand how your organization as like an organism lives and breathes because it's an interesting intersection of like all these disciplines, right? It's like, it's like technology and platforms and how platforms interact with your processes and your operations and the culture of your team. And I get really jacked up about all these relationships between things. Like if you're a leader in this space and you don't have a high technical acumen, you don't understand how technology drives design or how technology drives your culture or how technology decisions drive um, the talent, your talent acquisition strategy, then you're probably not going to make the most, the best decisions for the team as a, a, a broader entity. And so I'm far more intrigued by all that stuff than, you know, talking specifically about the output that we're delivering, even though it's all about delivering great output, which yeah. is the irony of it all, right? Yeah, but it's, but it's uh, the definition you've made about when the, a user has whatever in their hands, I think it's a, it's a very good uh, criteria. But in the moment you achieve that criteria and you actually shorten the time it takes for you to get something in the hands of the user, then you get, this is why it's never done, you get in the conversation of, okay, now what impact on my business does this have, mm -hmm. right? And then, okay, how can I, like for example, um, uh, uh, something that we're trying to research, because there's no, we don't know if there's a correlation yet, but uh, trust on banks is going down, right? Massively. Massively. Well, 6% in the last year. Not that bad. Okay. <laughs> He's got his reports. But, but it's, it's, it's like, why, why is this? And most people settle on uh, is the economic. Well, actually, the economy is doing pretty well. So I'm not, I'm not buying that argument that it's the economy. Uh, and I have a theory. We have a hy hypothesis, actually, which is we have built all these self-service uh, um, channels that are used more and more and more, which means that um, our customers are having conversations with us, but these are, you know, hard encoded conversations that no human is present to course correct if the user is having a bad experience. Uh, so I think there is something there. I think the, the, the move to self-service, <coughs> which is a cost reduction play and a great opportunity for us, it's actually playing against us in the sense that we're not having, like some of our customers, they don't talk to a human anymore. Right. They only interact with us through self-service channels. Mm -hmm. uh, so if that if that person is actually becoming uh, unhappy about us, how do I intercept that person 
And how do I have a conversation to course correct that lack of trust? But what is it about the lack of trust? Because I'm having the same types of conversations about like the financial institutions or the brokerages that I interact with as a consumer. Yeah. And I always thought that um, a lot of it was there, that it was this big black box phenomenon yeah. about about fees and about things that I'm. Again, it, it's hard; you can't see it, and you, you kind of lose track of it because life is so busy. I remember; I think it was ING, and this was probably before you moved to Canada. Had this number thing. Remember that? Remember those commercials where everybody was walking around with like a seven-digit yeah, number yeah, under yeah, their yeah. arm, and it was like the, it was like a bag. Yeah. And it was like, and it was like, I think that's the psychological riddle that people are trying to solve, which is like okay, that's great. I'm busting my ass. I'm saving all this money. I'm doing all these things. Am I going to be okay like when I retire? Like, am I going to be able to like afford and live a lifestyle? I think is a question that a lot of people are asking. Yeah. And so I thought like, you know, even though like the advent of digital is only going to separate people more and more um, from humans, from customers, if you will, um, there's, there's that idea of that, that psychological comfort to know that the path I'm on, the trajectory I'm on, the growth cagers that my investments will deliver will, will give me X. And right. I know that I can live off of X. And I feel like that is the essence of what, every time I log into rbc.com or use the app, like we're missing that. And yeah. I'm pretty sure Scotia and BMO, everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. And They're for me, I don't know what the research is telling you, but like for me as a consumer, I would say that that would be number one on my list. But there's the things like, for example, uh, if, uh, what's, what's a good saving number for you? You can tell me, you can self-report and, and we say... Can give you inputs to say yeah, what kind but, of lifestyle but that's I want not to live. true. Like, when you're actually faced with that saving, you might actually think, oh, this is not good enough. Before, uh, a person might actually see you and say, you know what, this is actually pretty good. And he might give you the context of yes. why this is good and make you feel good about that number, whatever it is. But now, you're doing all that yourself. And we actually may have added a text that says that, but you might not read it. No. And, and we're not there to make that bad experience become a good one because we hard-coded the experience in that bloody UI. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a danger. It's a cost-saving thing, and we might, get, we are, might be losing the track of it. But how do we, how do we, how do we fix it? I, I have no idea. It's, it's very complicated. It I, is. It and is telcos, really complicated. Telcos, I remember when, when I used to work as a consultant, I always told telcos, you only talk twice to your customer. When you send them the bill, <laughs> and they don't like that, yeah. and, and when they call you because they have a problem, those two conversations are negative conversations. Yeah, totally. This is an interesting dialogue because I think, I think there's a lot to be learned from the analog world as organizations invest in digital. And it's not just about digitizing everything. It's how do I bring certain elements of the analog world to digital? And I think this is a great example. There's actually uh, got some great quotes that you were making me think of um, yesterday. I'll give you one. Um, Jesus, that you just made me think of something very interesting. Did I? I'm trying to remember. The, <laughs> I'm trying to remember some of these quotes that were coming up, um, specifically around this idea um, that like big data and all of these new technologies and these things that are happening are actually giving people excuses to get further away from the customer. Yep. And how digitization is getting people further away from the end user. And I can't find the quote. I don't know where the hell are my have phone. To get, but, we have to get closer. But it's, that's my point, right? And so there's these parallels of bringing analog to digital, which isn't necessarily a bad thing and is something that's intriguing me these days around how we build and develop product. Yeah, I, yeah it's, it's a super interesting problem. And... Anyway, sorry, this, this will be another podcast, maybe. Yeah, we could, we could talk <laughs> about this for days. Um, I know you're kind of short on time. I've got one more question for both of you. Uh, it's kind of the standard question we always ask. Uh, five, ten years ago, if you had to give yourself a bit of advice, what do you think it would be? Ten years ago? 
It could be five, could be ten. If I was going to give myself advice. Yourself, yeah. My my, my past self. Your past self. Man. I remember five years ago, I would have told myself that I should have stood my ground with my boss. I I tend I and I tended to uh, rationalize uh, bad behaviors on uh, figures of authority mm-hmm. that I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I should have liquidated every asset that I owned and bought as much like Amazon, Google <laughs> stock as I possibly could have. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my Bitcoin, advice. Bitcoin, take, maybe take more risk. I remember uh, I remember being yeah. able to buy Bitcoin for like. Fifty dollars. I remember that too. I know. Uh, remember when Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can still mine it at a million dollars a pop. Um, yeah, no, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I know it's not necessarily that it's a bit of an obvious answer, but like it's amazing what's happening with the the growth trajectories of some of these technology companies yep. like Amazon and Google and what's happening with Netflix or Alibaba. It's quite amazing. And I think five years ago, 10 years ago, Sean would have said, liquidate everything you own, buy as much real estate in the city as possible and, you know, over invest in stock because you might pain for five years, but it'll be worth it in the end. Right. Yeah. There might be something to be said for that. Yeah. We suck. Let's just say way. Sean today is not necessarily resting on his laurels. Right. Um, but you know, professionally, um, <coughs> I'm still hunting, man. Like, you know, continue to hunt, continue to be curious, continue to drive. Like, don't, don't be satisfied. And I think that that's the, the same things I tell myself today. And just this, the barometer of success for me is this satisfaction. Back to Jesus and I talking, like, you're never done. The question is, are you satisfied? And so I think I keep reminding myself of that. That's a great question to ask yourself. Well, thank you both for, uh, for coming. It means a lot. It was a great chat. Uh, is there anything you guys want to plug or... or... Kind of just thrown at the end here. Well, RBC is a great bank to bank with. How about that? No, it's true. We, I, I do believe uh, I work with banks all around the world, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'm quite proud to be working for RBC. To be honest, it's a very good bank. Well, the one thing I always talk about when people ask about Telus, and you know, I'm not necessarily saying we're we're we're, we're the best in the world at this, but at least our aspirations are, which is, you know, we got about 47, 50,000 people. And if you asked any one of those team members what our number one priority is, they would tell you it's to put the customer first. Do they know exactly how to do that? Do we do the best job of that? Um, That's debatable. Um, and we have a long ways to go. But I think the idea that we're all kind of singing from the same song sheet um, on that topic is very powerful. Right. So I always talk about, you know, this kind of um, this culture and, and the singular focus on the customer is kind of what makes Telus amazing. So you're in harmony. Trying. Trying. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And that concludes my conversation with Jesus and Sean. I hope you enjoyed it, had fun listening to it, and maybe even learned a thing or two. Uh, I know I did. Um, you can find Jesus on Twitter and Instagram at Goriti, which is G-O-R-R-I-T-I, or his website, Goriti.com. Sean can be found at smbunk9. While you're there, make sure to follow us at Talent and Titan, as well as our sponsor at Creative Niche. If you haven't subscribed to Talent and Titan, please do so on iTunes or at talentandtitan.simplecast.fm. I am your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Until next time. Cheers.